welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Associate Director at the University of Minnesota, Cal Dietz. Tune in to episode 325 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today's guest is an absolute legend and someone that's certainly influenced me and influenced me early in my career with his book Triphasic Training, but has also influenced thousands and thousands of other people out there as well. So it was an absolute honor to get Cal on. So in this episode, we discuss obviously triphasic training, the methodology. Uh, where French contrast training fits into the methodology, uh, periodization. Then we have a little left turn and go towards training the foot and ankle, which is which is uh, what Cal is super passionate about, especially right now. Breathing, and then the goat performance drill, which I'll copy links to in the in the show notes. So you can there's a couple of videos that he shared with me, and I'll put them in the show notes so uh, you can have a little look at that and, and watch and get more detail on that. But a superb episode, so entertaining, but so informative as well. So I really appreciate Cal coming on and giving up his time. It was an absolute joy to speak to him, and hopefully that comes across in this episode. So it'll be definitely one that you won't want to uh, want to duck out of. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Perch. Perch enables velocity-based training, no strings attached. Engineered at MIT, Perch uses small and mobile cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it. By passively collecting speed and power data, delivering it in real time to athletes and storing it for post-workout analysis, Perch enhances workouts, reduces injuries and saves time. Perch works with every level of organization, from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team to the NFL's New York Giants, military installations, high schools, and to a number of growing sports performance facilities and even individual garage gyms. Perch is portable, easy to install, and intuitive to use, making it ideal for every facility and every training goal. No more pre-workout setup, no more attachments to athletes and barbells, no more broken strings. Set Perch up once and optimize every rep. Reach out to Perch today and for exclusive deals and offers, tell them Rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash Pacey. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. 
So iMeasure have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Cal Dietz. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this evening, I'm absolutely honoured to have Cal Dietz on the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Cal. Thanks for having me here. It's, uh, it's an awesome time. And just got back into training a few months ago with my athletes, and um, I'm glad to talk about a few things. It'll be exciting. Excellent. Well, thank you for giving up your time. A little bit of Instagram stalking going on. But you're a busy man, so thank you very much for uh, making the time. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, Cal, just want to give us a bit of a rundown on you, what you've done before, education-wise, and what you're currently doing at the University of Minnesota. Yeah, I started uh, coaching probably 20-plus years ago. I uh, uh, really first started you know, as a student coach at my university. Then I got an opportunity through some coaches that knew I was interested in the field 20-some years ago. I came to the University of Minnesota, um, got my graduate degree, started coaching athletes uh, as a graduate student, and times were different back then. Oh, boy, were they different. <laughs> you know, um, I think if people worked the way we worked back then, they would, you know, they it filtered the profession. She's, uh, I think at times I, you know, I didn't have much more than 80 bucks a month extra past my bills, and that was for food. You know, I ate a lot of supplements. <laughs> I ate a lot of supplements. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I think one day I drank those Sesta Cals for old people that we were given to one of the teams. I think I drank eight of them. <laughs> and then, and then uh, wow. And then there was those old power bars that were really hard. I mean, they were like, you could barely chew them, right? Um, they're much better nowadays. And I, I think I ate four of those in one day. And you're just like, oh, boy, that, that was a little rough. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little rough to finish those. Um, so, you know, I became a coach here. I left, coached around a little bit, and then came back about 18, 19 years ago, full-time at the University of Minnesota. And this is where my coaching really grew. I was the head strength coach. I oversaw 12 teams, Rob, which is – and then I programmed for those 12 teams. So I, I wrote – uh, I think I was writing 27 programs a month for more than a decade, right? And I was trying, I was experimenting, I was fortunate to have good assistance, or at least when they came in, they were, I made sure I ordered, or uh, I hired open-minded people to help me with those programs, be like, okay, like, and I couldn't see every team that we were running because we were just 12 teams. So, but I did see them mainly in the off-season, right? Was I concerned about the baseball in-season as much as the off-season? No, off-season was where the real training happened. So my, you know, writing all those programs a month, I, I started to be able to see things, you know, clearly in programming. And and then I, I, I weaned down over the years, and now I'm just down to two teams of, of writing programs. But I'll, I'll write six to seven different programs a month within one team now. 
so I still write a lot of programs and I try different things and we can talk about that as we go on. So when I got here though, I, I started looking for resources and I found one of the biggest ones was a Kessler force plate over in engineering. And there was a big engineering uh, professor. Uh, he is, uh, he was fabulous. He, he, he gave me Kessler force plates with three dimensional stuff. I mean, I, I still don't know a lot of people that have those, even though we, a lot of people have force plates, but the software was a three-dimensional force. And, it was just like, and I saw things, actually, I saw things, I'll probably release it in triphasing too. I saw things in that, on that force plate, that all these force plate people, and I've sat through many clinics, still haven't mentioned. So I'm just waiting for somebody 20 years later to, to mention something that I saw. And, and, and I don't know if they can, because I don't, because it's kind of coaching, coaching miles, and then putting the force plate together, I don't know if they'll see it. I don't even know if they know what to look for. I'll be honest with you, you know what I mean? And I'm not I'm not downplaying what they do. They do, I mean, it's awesome stuff what they're doing with force plates now. And it's really, force plates are what I built triphasic on, right, the, the information. So first started with force plates, and then, I mean, just resource after resource, I was able to find at the university. Uh, it was, at the time, it was around 200, maybe $180,000 nine camera motion analysis system that I was able, you know, and, and so, so about 17 years ago, I started doing the, the, the plyometrics from, you know, where the bands are hooked to the ceiling or, or hiding the racks. And I started that because the reason was I saw that I analyzed running with that motion analysis system and skating. And I realized that the speed of con at the joint angles in the weight room couldn't mimic anything that happened after the third step of skating or running. Like the speed was too fast. So then I'm like, I have to do plyometrics that are unloaded. So then I started unloading plyometrics and I got a higher velocity. So I, I mean, literally in the weight room, plyometrics are, are mimicking the first one, two, three steps. And then after that, it's too fast. Sports are too fast. So then I, you know, I, I hooked the bands to the ceiling and I was fortunate to, to be able to mimic, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth step, seventh. And then after that, like, it's still too fast, right? We, there's nothing we do in the weight room that, that that's that fast. So I guess my whole education came after that. And if you want to look at, I mean, I have a TMG machine. I have EMG machines. I just bought an EEG machine because the, the responses. I, I started adding up all my, and, and I didn't buy, I probably only bought about $150,000 of, of equipment of my own money. Um, from heart rate variability, Omega Wave, right? I've ran a lot of Omega Wave. I've ran other tests. I've, I've used other heart rate variability machines. Um, I, you know, the education on that, like, okay, take a supplement and see what happens to your heart rate variability. Does it affect it, right? Well, let's take supplements for the heart to see if it affects your heart rate variability. Um, so then I learned how to, uh, I have a pretty extensive profile of, of supplements that when I, I prefer the Omega Wave, I used I've used a bunch of different devices. I prefer the Omega Wave because it's for coaches, especially because it's a, such a broad and gives me a lot of good information. How can I change those readings? So if I have a professional athlete with bad readings on game day, what do I do to make sure he's got good readings by game time? And I mean, I've had supplements from I've had athletes take 16 different supplements on game days to make sure that those readings are, are good by the end. Uh, you know, so what do I do? I mean, I, I, I might drink and like I, I actually will drink and did the heart rate variability test between every, every serving of alcohol. See what happened. Why not? <laughs> right. 
I mean, I just experiment all the time. So I guess my point was with all these devices, I, I literally, the access I had to, I'm probably over a million dollars of, of a testing equipment in my time as a coach, which I have a hard time, you know, people like, well, I'm right. Did you test it? Did you, and I, it doesn't have to be scientific testing. Did, did you just test something? Right. I don't care if it's validated. I don't need to talk to And I love, I mean, I love all my scientist friends. Right. But no, I didn't validate it. And, and first of all, you're not going to look at my numbers and take them because I took them. Right. Like you, I need somebody else to take these numbers if, if you're going to validate something. But all I'm going to tell you is if 100 percent of the time this is better on 100 samples, I'm just going to go with it. You know what I'm saying? And we can talk about that later. So, you know, it, it's it's mind boggling to me. The amount of, I mean, everything we do, Rob, probably will get results at, to some point, right? Like er, anything you do, it'll probably get some level of results. But then to win an Olympic medal, eh, it's not going to. You know what I mean? The athletes get down to a certain level um, of that. But but again, the equipment I have and, and all the resources, and, and I, I've been fortunate to have companies give me equipment that I had to sign non-disclosures and can't share with to experiment the very first time. You know, and I was like, wow, this is, you're going to let me play with this. And then I give them, you know, I'm like, Hey, you should look at this, this, and this. I give them all these ideas and, and I'm just fortunate to, to do, be able to do that. But literally I think I'm over a million dollars in resources and, and, and then I've used them and I've had interns like the TMG machine that the Tensio myograph, um, it's like my interns come in, we do experiments. Like my last block of interns before COVID shut down, they were doing sets, analyzing the muscle seven seconds afterwards, kept analyzing and analyzing. They were doing a great job. We were finding like things we mainly knew, but it was just awesome to see that. So that's the biggest thing, you know, um, in my education is that I've, I've, I've read, I've experimented and, and I just play with things. I, I, you know, and I have the devices I have from, I have like devices that'll measure the amount of positive negative electron flow in your body. You know what I mean? And people go like, well, oh, is, is that valid? I'm like, I don't know. But I, <laughs> but if I can get a change, then I'm, I, I feel like there's something going on. You know what I mean? So yeah, there's a, there's a lot, a little bit about my background. Um, I, what keeps me up at night, at night is, is not providing the best methods for my athletes. And that keeps me up. I mean, so I, you know, when people ask me how I create all this stuff or make all this stuff and I have a formula and it's basically this, I literally question everything I do, which then creates problems I didn't even know I had. Right. And then I try to make solutions for those problems, you know, and, and that's kind of my formula. I, I look at various methods like, is there a better way? Really? Is there a better way? And then I just try to make solutions. Mm-hmm. That's my I don't think I don't think I've ever had someone on who's openly talked about how much they've actually experimented. Like people experiment, but you're experimenting. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't even publicly say some of them I've done, right? Like uh, legitimately, um, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, especially in the heart rate variability zone. Like, yeah, there's there's over the counter medications that help athletes with recovery that I think they do. And I, I found, so, I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can do. I, I mean, I just, you know, it's, at some point I'll release that, but even with the triphasic system that I have, Rob, I have nutrition that matches up with, with the, the zones of training that you do. Right. Of course. 
Yeah, you know, like one, you know, I, I tell my athletes, I can't tell them to take supplements in my uh, in my position at the university, uh, the national team I can, but you're like, okay, I can't do that, but I can tell them to eat fried chicken because it has the right nutrients to help them recover from eccentrics. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I can give them ideas whole food wise. So, I, and, and at some point I'll write a, uh, probably a, a manual or something along those guidelines, but yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd like to dive into the triphasic training stuff, Cal, because I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm positive in fact, there's people listening to this who've been influenced by the methodology in the book um, a lot, uh, me, me personally included. So I'd like to dive into the people, for the people that maybe haven't read the book or aren't aware of, um, of you, just dive into that, where it, where it came from, and you've, you've, you've spoken a, a little bit about it there, but the, the journey to, towards the, the book and just a little bit around that, and then we can, we can dive into that a little bit further then. Oh, yeah. Well, the journey started um, with the force plates, and I, I, I talk about in the book how when, when I was looking at the force plates of, of athletes jumping and then benching, uh, I had two athletes that were literally the same level of strength, but one threw the shot put 10 feet far, farther than the other. Okay. And I was like, what is going on here? Well, then I was testing their, their bench press. They're laying on the force plates on a metal bench and the force plate was on top of that. And I, I was analyzing them doing band tension with, uh, doing the bench press. And, and I mean, they could bench like 200 kilos in your world. Uh, which is 440, obviously, for the uh, other side of the world. That <laughs> um, and then I, I think I had around 100 kilos with some band tension on there. And we were doing high-speed, high-velocity benches. I mean, these, these dudes could move the weight, right? Well, the one guy that threw this shot put extremely far, extremely far, like 10 feet farther, you're going – and these are both elite shot putters, but one's way more elite. And you're going – like he could bring the and, and you look at how fast they could move it and and this let's say the scope is in a V, the speed at which the fifty-five foot shot putter could throw it, the V was like more open. And then the V with the sixty-five footer was more steep. And so he could move the weights faster. And everyone looks, well, yeah, he can throw a shot putter because on the concentric phase, they were everyone thought, well, yeah, he can move it faster, so he can, even though they're the same strength levels. But what everyone didn't realize is after sample after sample, I started realizing the backside of that V correlates with the front side, you know? And I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a big deal, right? So you're going, okay. So I learned that, and I knew this, but there it was. And, and then I learned also that if you can't handle the load, you can't reapply it. Right. So even if you're shot putting and you go to wind up and you're twisting, if you can't absorb the force of that load being wound up, you can't reapply it. And then with the triphasic, we, you know, basically our track athletes, we had two elite pretty track kids that, that ran the world's fastest uh, 400 times to date. They're about two weeks apart. And we've been doing triphasic. You know, like people were calling, what are you guys doing with these kids? These are just college kids, you know, running some pretty elite times. And, it was triphasic and my coach, and here's the beauty of it. We were basically going off flying tens when I realized this of these track kids types, we did an eccentric phase. So what is triphasic real quick? 
it's two weeks of eccentric, two or three weeks of eccentric training focus, two weeks of isometrics, and then back to your normal training, which is the concentric. And, and we can get into the effects of it. But, you know, my, my coaches were willing at the time to be like, okay, we're doing an eccentric phase. These elite track kids, all of them, their flying tens got slower. Okay? They're like, that seems reasonable because we're really stressing them. But but we didn't have a meet for eight to ten weeks later, right? And then we did the ISO phase, and they're like, well, they're, they're okay. They're holding. They're not getting worse. And at the end of the ISO, they actually started getting a little faster climbing back up. Well, then three to four weeks later, they ran their PRs. And we were like, okay, that was good. And we recycled that through the season and, and good things started happening. So triphasic, realistically, people have to realize it's a two-week block of eccentrics. The next two weeks, you can you can put a light week in there. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't have to be consecutively. The isometric phase, and, and we'll get into why they work, is about two weeks. And then the concentric phase. And then what happens is a couple weeks later, you will see your PRs in your sport if it's speed development, maybe even four weeks later, depends on the athlete. But the beauty of it is it's not sport specific. It's not, but it sets you up to get great sporting results a few weeks later when you, when you understand the, the concept of it. Right. So, and then what, so, so for people thinking about that and it's pretty simple, do you think they understand And most people probably understand eccentrics, right? Where you're going down slow and control yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. on this podcast. Um, if you if you don't understand that, then you all the other podcasts you listen to, you know what I'm talking about. Right, right. I mean the audience here. So, but but the beauty of it is is that, and people say, well, can you do them both at the same time? Of course, and it'll work. But the problem is with advanced athletes, if you are doing both together. I found that I did not get the results, or they got worse results doing them together. If they've done triphasic and block methods before, when I say that, the two weeks, the eccentric two weeks, the ISO. Why? Because it's very specific stress. Once you get an athlete to a very elite level or just an advanced level, and it doesn't – what's going to happen is you have to do very specific methods to get that person to advance down the road to get better, right? So by mixing qualities, it's not going to be optimal. It's not going to be optimal. So then, and people say, you know, the eccentric phase, it does a ton of different things for you. It remodels tissue. So, so what it really does is the biggest thing is that it'll, the actinomyosin head in the muscle fiber, when they're connected and you're doing heavy weight and they've connected the actinomyosin head, and then you slowly pull them apart with the eccentric phase, it breaks those necks on those active myosin heads. Well, the immune system comes in because there's immune system response. Um, white blood cells goes through the roof, to be honest with you. Sounds horrible, right? But it's a training response. And what happens is it makes that tissue stiffer. With that tissue being stiffer, you're more resistant towards in, uh, injury. Does that make sense? So that resistance, now you have stronger tissue after two weeks, and then you come into the isometric phase which now with that new tissue, you get to make it really strong without destroying it as much because you're less sore. The isometric phase, there's a lot of magic in that phase. And when I say that, 
you know, I remember a Berkashansky clinic I was listening to years ago where he's like, isometrics are good. We just don't know how to put them into sports. Well, you don't do them in the sport per se. You've got to do them away from the sport and get the results later. So the isometric phase, one of the one of the craziest things that I don't hear people talk about in sports is the limiting factor of the vascular system. I'll be honest with you. So I have a tool called the Moxie, and it, it analyzes, I don't know, you probably know of it. Yeah, yeah. It analyzes, uh, you know, the red blood cells, the tissues, and the veins. And what I found was some of the limiting factors in athletes on a local level, it's not their, it's not their lungs, it's not their heart, it's the vascular system around their muscles. So whether they have an arterial problem, which the arteries are a little tight and the blood flow can't get in there, or that, that part of the artery is fine, the muscle can use it, but it can't send it back and it cause, causes a backup in the vein on the venous return. Well, one of the, when I identify an athlete with that problem, once they go through the isometric phase, it gives them more pliability on the veins and the arteries locally. And I've also analyzed heart or um, pulse wave velocity, which improves drastically. So at the end of an isometric phase, Rob, I've caught with no conditioning, my athletes, uh, one, one year, it was between eight and 12 beats after a two week isometric, isometric cycle of their resting heart rate. I mean, I had kids at 50, literally dropped to 38 in their resting heart rates. Why? Because of the effect on the vascular system. Now, why is that important? It's important for recovery. All these recovery methods, why do they work? They work because they move blood around, right? That's it, let's be honest. Cold tub, hot tubs, back and forth, yep. I, honestly, the, the, the best recovery I've tracked the best recovery I, I, I can see is a 20-minute walk or a 30-minute walk. Just moving blood around. Go outside. Go for a walk. And when I say that, like, and people say, well, I'm done with practice. I need to go for a walk. Nope. You need to wait about two hours, get some food in you, and then go for your walk. Because if you do a walk right after practice, it thinks it's, your body will still think, in my opinion, is practice. But if you separate, cause a parasympathetic response, and then go for a walk, it moves fluid around, and that's recovered. Now... Um, even in my young pros, I caught like problems, a reduced function of their capillaries. I have a device that will measure that. At the end of the season, why? Because they're in such lactate, they get in, they have some insulin sensitivity. Even young 26-year-olds have insulin sensitivity issues at the end of the season in hockey because of the cortisol that's just rammed in their body because they're always in the lactate phase, uh, which is their sport, right? They, they're doing a long shift. Boom. I've seen that. People that have come to me as an older athlete get the isometrics in and they don't have that at the end of the year because the isometrics and look, uh, isometrics help with blood pressure in old people. You, you've seen those devices now that they have them do the grips, right? Mm -hmm. And improve, right? Well, 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 Rob, what do you think is happening when I have a female athlete with a 365 pounds on her back, which would, how many kilos is that? I'm, I'm going to say roughly about one say 80, whatever. whatever. Um, Holding a 10-second single-leg squat with 360, and she weighs 132. Her blood pressure spikes really high. Her vascular system has to adapt. If you're not adapting to that, you're going to die, right? 
And, and the beauty of that is that pliability. So with each heartbeat, after you've done that training, her heartbeat dropped, resting heart rate dropped to, I think she was around 36. So the pliability of the vascular system is improved so much with each heartbeat, there's more substrates pushed to every part of her body. And with that being said, her metabolic capacity goes through the roof because she's just more efficient. So the heart's strong, the lung's strong. I'm just telling you, especially especially with the arteries, people are so stressed now. We can all agree to that, right? There's a sympathetic response. And what happens is those, those veins tighten or the arteries tighten down a lot. Okay. So what I do with isometric phase or what isometrics do, I don't do it. The vascular system opens up, becomes more efficient. And I see some crazy adaptations in that system, which I think is a left out system. I'll be honest with you. 16, 18 year old kids. Yes. But you live in the world now where there's so much stress. I even think my 22 to 23 year old kids start to have some problems, but the isometric phase helps that. So that's the beauty. When you put those two things back to back, you see some crazy good changes metabolically. And, and are you in better shape? No, you're not in better shape. But what they, what you just did was took care of the rate limiter and an entire complex system of your metabolic system, right? That rate limiter was the vascular system locally by your muscles, not by your heart, but by your muscles, which is which was a lot of the problems with some of these kids that if they think they're out of shape, their heart's super strong, it's the vascular system by the muscle. And by doing triphasing, it helps support that. Would you say that this is for guys with a, a increased training age, let's say, rather than beginners slash intermediate athletes, or can it be catered for all levels of athletes? I've had coaches from all levels tell me about this. Now, if you're not going heavy, then you're not getting the true triphasic effect, right? The true intention, yes. Because you have to go heavy. Like, you have to go above 80%, in my opinion, to get the, the responses with the blood pressure, you know, the vascular, the tissue tearing apart. You have to go above 80 I've had coaches that reach out. Many, many coaches say, hey, I did triphasic with our junior high kids trying to teach them to squat lightweight, and they learned the squat better. Well, okay, yeah, it makes sense because you're – you know, you're, when they first start to squat, they're a little bit like their brain goes, oh, I haven't been here before, right? It's a, well, if you go down slow and controlled, guess what? It's probably not like inhibiting you is bad. So I think it can be, a, is it the optimal learning tool? I would have to assume there's a better way, but it's a good one for what they can do now, right? And it sets those kids up so that when they do try phasing later, they're ready to do it. They know, they understand eccentrics and isometrics and it's in their coaching system. Yeah. I mean, the thousands of high school that have emailed me about try phasing. Uh, and we're talking high school for this worldwide podcast. And we're talking about ages, you know, 14 to 18, basically. Yep. 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 So honestly, it's, it can be used at any level. I think it can be, I mean, I know physical therapists, I, I did a, I did, I lectured to 50 physical therapists at the Mayo Clinic last spring before, or last winter before COVID shut us down. And, and, you know, they wanted specific stuff on triphasic for, for rehab. And, and we talked about that. Now in rehab, a lot of them have, come to the conclusion they need to do an isometric phase first to get strong okay then they do the eccentric phase because if, if you're weak and you can't do much eccentrics 
Okay, you're not going to get the effect, right? So, especially coming out of surgery. So they do isometrics, which make them strong enough to do the eccentrics, and then they come back with a more heavier loaded isometrics, right? In that order. So, um, and that may be what you want to do with a really weak kid. I'll find isometrics are really, I, I think those are the most effective method of getting strong. Isometrics in a weak position get athletes super strong. And then also all this remodels tissue. So the eccentrics and the isometrics remodel tissue. When I say that, we did a quick uh, experiment with our, I think we had 18 pitchers uh, on the team at one time. We checked their range of motion, uh, GERDS test, right? And I didn't even do this one. We should have published this. Six were too tight at the end of the season. Six were too loose at the end of the season. And six were, I mean, it was like third, third, third. We did triphasic six weeks, he remeasured. Everybody was in the right range of motion. So the kids that were loose, it, it strengthened them, got them, the tissues better, stronger, and tightened them up. And the kids that were too tight, it loosened them up. So it kind of is a self-regulation of where your tissue should be, which is pretty crazy because I have a well, the TMG machine, the tensor mind graph, Rob. Like I, I train about twenty pros in the uh, in the summer right now or last summer, and. What happens is if they get an injury anywhere, they come back with a prescription to stretch it, stretch that muscle. And the TMG machine, the tensor micraph, tells me whether that muscle's too tight or too loose. And it, it takes their age into consideration and their sport. And they say, well, I have to stretch this muscle. Muscle. And when we tested on the tensor micraph, 50% of those guys that got a prescription to stretch were actually too loose, right? The machine told me they were too loose. And when I checked, I'm like, yeah, it's only going to make them worse. So, like, again, here's an example of, of people mindlessly just prescribing something. Well, he was injured here. Let's stretch it. We actually might make it worse. Like, it, it's so frustrating because you didn't test anything. Now, I know that's a pricey device. It's 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 probably 18 grand or something like that. But for me, I'm like, if, if there's something I can't figure out, Rob, I th this is one of my go-tos. Like, all right, what's the – What's going on here? Is is the is there too much tonus in the muscle? Is it is it too tight? Is it too loose? Where are we at? You know what I mean? And that and you just don't know sometimes unless you have devices like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the one of the videos that I, I watched today, I think, was was a reasonably recent one. You spoke about bypassing the eccentric phase and going straight to isometric. Why would you do that? You mentioned it in the video, which is on YouTube, so I'll yeah. link to that. But why, why would you do that? Any specific population? Any reason? Um, well, I would say uh, if no one's ever, if your athletes haven't done triphasic, I would do an eccentric phase no matter what, right? But then, Rob, when I'm planning a training cycle, let's say I got 20 weeks in the summer, which is long for most people, but my athletes are here all the time. If I'm going to take them through triphasic, like maybe they don't need the eccentric the second time. So what I began to realize, and, and Rob, I took... 20 years of numbers and this is this is uh yeah this is this is uh awesome and and i mean and, and people I, I have to say thanks though all my assistants over here people think i'm triphasic triphasic is a makeup of sport coaches my assistants helping me gather all this information right so i can't sure i i, I actually named triphasic but whatever i mean <laughs> people not eccentric i says, but 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 to your point was um i took 20 years of numbers on the 1020 yard dash. And you can use this tool for meters. I have a tool that, that does this. And I took the uh, 
and I had pro agilities. I have vertical jump. I have vertical jump with pause. I, uh, at some points I had force plate. I had squat max. I had clean maxes all, all dated. So I could look at a kid's 10, 20 and their pro agility and then see how strong they were and be like, he needs more strength. So over the, I, I was able to go through my, my, uh, my numbers, Rob. And if an athlete runs a 10, 20 yard dash for me, and then on, on electronic time, and this is a for, and this is on a this is a formula I, I have on the website. It's called uh, Performance Made Simple. If you put in your handheld pro agility time, and and again, this is handheld with a no hand touch, right? Because a lot of people touch the line. I don't do a hand because that's just another variable. And I hadn't done pro agility like that, and I was just like, I, I'm not doing this for some combine. I'm 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 just doing it for myself. I would do a no hand touch pro agility and I was able to identify kids that needed eccentric strength. So I did that for a while and I was fortunate and, and I confirmed it here. These kids need more or less eccentric strength. So if you're based upon your 10, 20 yard dash time or 10, 20 meter time, you would do a handheld pro agility. And what happens is if you're slow and you can't change directions, it tells me that you need eccentric training. And it's a hack. Is it perfect? No, but it's really good and it's really close. You know what I mean? And uh, so then what I found, Rob, so let's say, and I'm telling you how to hack triphasic. So you want to do triphasic. I'm telling you maybe your athlete doesn't need the eccentric phase. But then the next phase is the ISO phase. And on that, on that same uh, website, it actually has a timing thing. So if you can get your five-yard dash, and the 10 and 20, you put it in. So I'll have four timing gates set up. When they run their 20, I get all of them. Rob, the isometric phase is based upon the five-yard dash. So it that's starting strength. The five-yard dash is more correlated with starting strength, which starting strength is correlated with isometrics. And I'll be darned when I start to filter numbers, this kid needs more isometric strength. And I can, I can figure it out here with strength machines, right? I have a... Uh, no, I have a 1080s, these synchros. I have two of them. They're $50,000 a piece. So I know if you need eccentric strength, I know if you need ISO. Well, you can confirm all this, but that five-yard dash tool, you put that formula in. So you put your athlete's five-yard dash, 10 and 20-yard dash in, and it will tell you as a coach if you need isometrics or not. So I'm telling you, you may not need them all, the, all those phases, so the beauty of that is, is you run a triphasic cycle. Let's say I drop the isometrics. I can peak my kids sooner and get results faster and then redo, redo another triphasic if needed. But, but now what I'm saying is, Rob, when you walk into my weight room on a Monday, if it's the right Monday, well, every Monday now, because kids are on different cycles in the summer, we run a 10, 20 yard dash and that will place you in there. And I get a five yard dash now. Hey, they needed strength and they're, they're weak on isometrics. Okay, guess what phase he does? He'll do an isometric phase of isometrics or uh, a strength phase of isometrics. And then I'll run the pro agility, plug that in. Hey, he needs eccentrics. So then I know during that time if we need to do those or not. Like it's, it's to me, it's pretty simple because ultimately I don't want to train a kid in an eccentric fashion if he doesn't need it. And I knew this was a flaw. This is a flaw in all periodization models where we take people through and, and I began to realize they may not need 
this particular block of training, but I'm going to have them do it anyway because, damn it, that's what we do, right? (laughs) It's a machine. It's a machine. (laughs) It's on the machine. Like, I know, right? Like, you you, you know what I mean? And I knew periodization was flawed. I'll tell you how flawed it is. So when I say 10-20 tool, I took that 10 and 20 tool. And let's say I have – I actually have 13 zones of training. It's on my – web page or YouTube page, you can find them, Rob. But I was able to, let's say there's really three types. I, I label it strength. You either, you, you train strength or you train power or you train speed. Speed's below 50%. Power's between 50 and 75. And then strength is 80 and above. Okay, so that's, that's your three zones. I was able to take that 10, 20 and all those numbers and figure out with vertical jump and everything and power cleans at the time. If when you run your 1020 and you plug in those numbers on my website, performance made simple, it will tell you, and this is for free. It will tell you if your athlete needs strength, power or speed. It's crazy. And so if you take a look at your athletes and this is, this was, I had about, I had about 250 athletes doing this one summer. I only had 50. If you graph those results, so an athlete would come in on Monday, run the 1020 tool, and let's say he needed speed. And then the next week he needed strength. And then the next week, the next two weeks he needed power. It took them through this process. So when you graph this out, and I had other coaches do it, do you know how many athletes out of roughly 200 followed the traditional strength, power, speed model. We're not talking that we had to do them. This was what their body said they needed. How many people followed the traditional model? It was 20%. So I'm going to tell you, following the traditional model for for 18 years, maybe 20-some, I was only right optimal 20% of the time. How about this? If you looked at it, let's say we flip the traditional periodization model. 30% 30% correct. Um, so, so, so in more advanced athletes, not high school, high school, you follow it. It'll be perfect. I think my opinion, college level athletes, if we had reverse periodization, we'd have got it more right. Cause 30% of those, that's what they followed. And then the other 50 left in the middle was just the mix. They followed basically no pattern. If that makes sense, because you could do strength one time and speed, which, which brings you the point, Rob, Let's say I needed an athlete walk in my weight room day one and needed speed. I didn't hit the speed block until eight weeks later. So they would go through triphasic and not be optimal for eight weeks. No, we got results. But but my point is that if I hit speed week one and then we go to power and then we hit a strength block in the middle, which they needed eccentrics after they got more speed and power because they can't stop two weeks later. And then we do speed again after that we got even better results. I had athletes that had trained with me for seven years because they went professional, hit new speed limits, new speed. Like, and people are like, well, how do you know it works? Well, they're 20 times. Keep getting faster. Like, <laughs> with it, right? I don't know. Like maybe it doesn't work, but we're getting faster. It's like, it's the quality I like. Right. And again, that's, that's the, the testing. And, and honestly, I, uh, my testing, I have, I have 12 timing gates. So I'll do some testing on the ice. It's pretty crazy. But I mean, my 12 timing gates, and I don't set them all up, obviously, but to run this 1020 tool, 
I mean, and it comes back to my laptop. I, I like the muscle lab. You know, I know they have some – with that timing system, we hit the athlete's name, hit go. When they run the gates, it'll get me 12 timing sections of that athlete. So if I want to run the 100 and I want to get, you know, 10-yard intervals, I can get it. Yeah. And, I mean, I have 1080 synchros too, the running device. I have four of those. So those are pretty nice too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as again, I have a lot of equipment, a lot of things. So, and, but, but I'll be the first person. So I had $80,000 in synchros last summer. Rob, I completely dropped those. It was two summers ago, not using them. $80,000, almost brand new. And I stopped using them to confirm that this 1080 tool for periodization worked. And people are like, why don't we use them? We just got them like a few months ago. I'm like, I have to confirm that because because I know those work and I didn't want those to influence the 1020 tool to see if it worked for me. You know what I mean? So I was I was more than willing to stop using an eighty thousand dollars worth of devices for three months to confirm that this this periodization tool worked. And it did. Now to progress periodization faster, you can use the 1080s, especially for resistance or assistance. I mean, those are uh, some pretty, pretty robotic devices that I feel are. Uh, definitely beneficial for your coaches. I should have asked this at the start, Carl. How many how many sales in your book have you had? Do you know? Yeah. Oh, Do you know? No. Uh, I would assume how many are out there? Because the first one was uh, it's hard because we do ebooks and then it got stolen obviously. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean there's some website that was downloaded fifty thousand times. So I mean I have well over a hundred thousand. You know what I mean? Bought yeah. so um, is it how many copies? I don't know. Yeah. Lots. <laughs> Lots. Yeah, and yeah, That's just fine. just came to me. Just came to me and I thought I'm, I'm interested. Yeah. yeah. Um you know, and and like I'm more I get more excited, not about the book sales, but people giving me stories like, hey, I did this with this athlete, you know what I mean? And absolutely. You know, and I don't I don't take credit for it. I mean, it's what the athlete needed at the time and the coach was able to put it in and you know, and I mean I've had I, I've had a mixture of uh, track athletes who set world records in sprinting, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say their name because I, I, I never heard of the person. So like I'm in their coach, like they spent a year. I'm not going to say, Oh, it's because of triphasic. No, we found a couple weak links that triphasic got rid of that probably helped them and their coach get them that much. That's it. That's all we're talking about, right? Like an inch, an inch better, but guess what? It helped them. I, I don't take credit for that. Right. That's not, um, I know that my injuries are, with my teams are so low because of that. Um, some other things, when you do a super maximal now, and triphasic two, we'll talk about super maximal loading. Rob, I, I've been, you know, people say, when I first started, people told me I can't do it. When I say that, I load between 110 and 120%. Okay. And I, that's why I like the safety bar split squat, because I legitimately have kids and young athletes that do that. And they feel real. They'd rather do a safety bar split squat with 120% on their back than a 75% barbell back squat. It's just more comfortable. You know what I'm saying? And then it's a way for me to hack to get them loaded. And the loading, Rob, I, I think the biggest problem I have with, with some training is that people started following the rehab paradigm and they don't apply enough stress. Okay. You know what I mean? Is that is that through fear of I, job security just, just I don't know Rob. Yeah, okay. yeah but 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 look 
I mean, on my train and on my, you know, I just don't think there's enough stress. So, so Rob, if there's no stress response, did you really get a training response from anything? You know, I, I, there's a un, the untraining of an athlete. I, I go through this, and, and I'll be, I'll be really quick with this. I had an athlete that was freaky. I mean, unbelievable, great. She goes to the national team for her country. Thank God it wasn't the U.S. And uh, <laughs> and and they gave her a program. They're like, hey, will you do this with Cal? And I was like, come on in here. And we made sure she got it done. And when she goes back to test 12 weeks later, guess what? And they did an extensive testing program. All 12, all 12 numbers got worse. And they were like, what'd you do? And she's like, well, I did your program. But, but Rob, I'll give you this. She was actually the, the, the one athlete I talked about. She was 135 pounds, 132, and did a 365 single leg safety bar squat. And her program from the national team, she basically went to 16-pound kettlebell swings. So she replaced a 365-pound single leg safety bar squat with – and people are like, well, just do heavier kettlebell swings. You're missing the point. <laughs> like, if you think that's going to – if you think going to 32-pound kettlebell swings are, are going like, yeah, to – okay, you missed the point. You need to you need to re- revamp your thinking. But but my point is, is all, all these tests got worse. And here's what I and, – and I knew this was going to happen, Rob, and here's how. When I trained her before, you would see the, the stress happen, and I'd throw her on the mega wave, and guess what you saw? If she did a 365-pound single-leg safety bar split squat, I saw a parasympathetic system kick in. Why? Because there was a training response. When she was doing her national team program and doing the 16-pound kettlebell swings, which are good exercises, I'm not saying they're not, right? And we omega-waved her. Guess what never activated? The parasympathetic system. So if there was no activation of the parasympathetic system, Rob, there was no training effect. So she did eight weeks of training, or 10, with no parasympathetic activation because there was no training effect. This is what this is my thing. Like, you know, um, Chris Corfus came up with some spring ankle exercises that are some of the best foot exercises for athletes I've seen. I, I've been using them for years. And and people look at and they're violent. So I have I do have 130-pound girls that will get up in a really specific position they're actually on my youtube page if people want to search spring ankle and i i'm a 250 i'm just north of 250 rob we'll just leave it that (laughs) (laughs) which is is what 106 kilos what a 710 and i'm i'm violently pushing on a female in a squat position where she's on her toes on a ledge holding that position right that is awful but they can hold that for 10 seconds violently. Like it's violent force. So with their body weight in mind pushing down, we're, we're talking four, 400 plus pounds. And when I say that, but in a physical therapist, we're like, well, why don't you just do this towel exercise where their toe squeezes, squeezes the, the towel? And I'm like, you don't even understand. Like, and I'm like, well, why don't you do that exercise for a month and then come try this and you will break in one second. Do you understand? Like the stress that people have shifted away from. And I think you're right on job security. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Which is counterintuitive, of course, because if you're not stressing the guys or the girls, that leads to potentially increased injuries, which then results right. in the same thing as the alternative, which yeah, is right. potentially losing a job. Yeah. Um, um, but I think it's – and Rob, so I use super maximal loading. 
I started this eight years ago. Have never had one injury. I also, eight years ago, started doing super maximum loading with the floating heel on their toes. I, Rob, 15 years ago, I remember, I, I was watching through the, the basketball arena. I saw one of the top rebounders in the Big Ten was doing a rebounding drill. And for like a minute and a half, two minutes maybe, his heel never touched the ground. And he's doing, and he's making all these rebounds and putting the ball back up. And I'm like, this, and you know how people will teach the plyometrics and have them push their butt back and they're on their heels. And then they, you know what I mean? And I'm like, that's not how people jump. Like this guy's jumping on his toes the whole time. So like even, even 15 years ago, I switched doing jumps like the typical, you know, formatted way. All my plyos, everything I jumped was toes and knees in front of your toes and your heels off the ground. Now, if your heels hit, that's okay. But a, a majority of all force has to run through the forefoot. Does that make sense? And, and like people would come and watch my plyometric session. They're like, well, they're not on their heels. Like, I'm like, no, because they don't, they don't run on their heels. Uh, 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 one of the greatest coaches I, I've ever, I've ever dealt with, uh, Hank Krasnov pointed out there's not one animal in the world that runs on their heels. Not one animal, except an elephant. And I said that once, and I was corrected by an elephant person, right? <laughs> so elephants, when they run, their heels off the ground, the fat pad just hits the ground. So their heels actually not hitting the ground, just okay. the fat pad. So <laughs> we were wrong, right? Again, we're wrong again. And ask my ask my ex-wife. Like, uh, she was wrong all the time. You know, but but ultimately, I I started doing floating heels years ago. And and look, Rob, with the spring ankle exercises, the main purpose is when your foot strikes the ground. If that arch collapses a little bit, if it can't absorb the force, your brain goes into survival mode. Are you ready? It tries to find stability in the knee. Can't do it. It will lock down various muscles in the hip. Everyone with an arch problem that's weak, I will muscle test the hip and show you all, they're all the same. Everyone has the same muscles. They can't stabilize very well, okay, because other muscles have turned on. And then, Rob, when that hip becomes tight for stability on every foot strike because the arch is collapsing, the opposite QL starts to lock down. So everybody that's had that foot problem for more than a month, the opposite QL, if you dig into there, if you, if you can do body work, is locked down. Why? Because of the lateral sling that comes across. If the right hip, if the right arch collapses upon impact and striking, the right hip starts to lock things down, it, trying to stabilize, and then the left QL starts to lock down. And then what you'll see, Rob, is the left elbow, when they're sprinting, start to sneak out. So you may coach that left elbow in, and they may look good when they're running, but guess what you're doing? You're just keeping that problem there. It's not. what Actually, by, whole, by coaching them to put their elbow in, and I'm not saying the elbow shouldn't be in. It should be. By coaching them to put the elbow in, what now has to happen? They have to find stability somewhere so the back locks down even tighter and the hip locks down even tighter. So I use RPR. If I hit the arch reset for RPR and I have them run, guess what they do without coaching them? They put their elbow down because the arch reset will stabilize them for a few hours. And when the foot strikes the ground, they'll be strong. The hip unlocks. And this is instant. 
the QL loosens up and the arm will now run in the correct pattern. So when people come here, Rob, the one thing that I don't do is I don't coach running because running in my opinion is a series of reflexes and those reflexes are the greatest indicator of what's going on in the human body. Okay. Like I've taken world-class sprint coaches. I'm not going to say their name because they didn't see this, but Chris Corfus caught eight running flaws in high school kids. And those running flaws, right, were really bad. But he fixed them with the, uh, the spring ankle exercises and the ankle rocker exercises that we do. And the sprint coach goes, and every world-class sprint coach, he goes, I've never seen that flaw before. Well, of course, you work with the greatest sprinters in the world. How, how can you coach a high school kid that has a flaw in running, right? Because you probably, and you may be able to, but, but I'm like, You've never seen these eight running mechanic because you don't coach slow people. Right? I coach slow people <laughs> compared to what they coach. And and like, it, I'm just telling you, if my son was a world class sprinter, I'd send him probably any of the world class speed coaches until we, you know what I mean. I, I trust them. But people say, well, well, well this world class speed coach does this, that, or this drill. I'm going, but that drill can't possibly work for this slow ass athlete. You know what I mean? And what drills work for them? Like some, I've had world-class coaches come here and they're speed coaches and go, I, I just don't see that drill work. I'm like, yeah, but see how it works for this slow ass, like extremely slow kid. I'm going, it works for them. So, so the drills that I need to do, in my opinion, I get most of my running drills from coaches that coach bad athletes that, that seem to fix problems. You know what I mean? And there's, there's not that many of them out there. I'll be honest with you, because that's more what I coach is the kids with that app that are, that are actually bad runners. So my point to you is that I see bad running problems, Rob, and it's just an indicator of what's going on in the body. I will try not to, to coach. I won't coach your running form because I want to see if I can fix it in the weight room without coaching them. Because if they start with the one arm out and then we, we train them through either RPR or we train them in the weight room and their arms come in in a few weeks, I know I fixed that problem. Does that make sense? Because running is wired into us. What's the, if somebody, if a bear runs right into your house, you're going to jump out the window. What are you going to do? You're going to run. It's it's the survival mechanism. We're wired to do that. But, but by coaching somebody into the right running form, you're leaving all the possible problems that can exist. Now, look, if I was coaching sprinting athletes, I would have to coach them right out of the gate, but, but I'm not going to do that. I don't coach sprinting athletes, right? I do, I'm, in a, I'm in a world, though, where, where my athletes are really horrible runners at the beginning of the year because they just got out of the hockey season. Have you ever seen a hockey person run? No, I haven't. Right. <laughs> you would go, what in the hell just happened when they ran their 20, right? They're extremely fast because they're really powerful. And, and honestly, in acceleration, there's, there's running technique, it's all over the place in acceleration. Even the world-class sprinters, they know that. You go, what the hell is this, Cal? I go, yeah, this is post-hockey season running. Like, I'm surprised they don't, they don't pull a hammy every rep, right? So, but then two months later, they're pretty good. You know what I mean? And I haven't coached them. I just, I'm hoping the exercises we select are, are going to fix those problems. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Cal. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around training the foot and ankle, which Cal is really passionate about right now. Breathing. And then we finish off with the GOAT performance drill, which I will copy links to a couple of videos from Cal 
in the uh, in the show notes so you can check them out there. But I hope you're enjoying part one. Great part two coming up. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out, or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc., have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. But one thing we discussed before, Carl, I had a little chat around was performance pattern cycling. And again, links back to a relatively recent YouTube YouTube video that you um, that you put together. Talk to us a little about a little bit about that because this is somewhere where you've changed your mind recently, which so, is interesting. I like I like that. Yeah, yeah. So, Rob, what happened was over COVID, I was. Uh, I had my son to experiment on, right? And he's a hockey player and he's uh, neurologically, I mean, his mom was an Olympic champion. I would say he, he can adapt pretty well. Like he's, he's a neurologically learns motor skills very fast. Now, is he a freak? I'm like, to me, he's a freak how fast he can learn something new. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, that's good. Anyway, long story short, I would run him. I'd warm him up. We'd run before the warm workout. And then what I caught, Rob, was I watched him run, I video it. And then he goes and does my safety bar split squat exercise with some hurdle hops. And Rob, then I then I videoed him running again. And his running like changed drastically. And what, what happened was he shifted into a really quad dominant pattern, which in running, he will undulate at every acceleration phase. So when the foot strikes the ground, he's undulating more than he did. the. So I bring the video back from before he did that exercise. I'm like, he's not undulating. So then I realized the exercise caused a quad dominant pattern. I went, whoa, I'm, and this is just like four sets. I'm going, this is crazy. So then I went, and then I had him do a couple other drills and it showed where, and actually on my YouTube page, it was a, a straight leg, like a uh, power skip. And he's really undulating up and down on that too. And I use that one as an example. So then I actually did a glued ham hyper and a reverse hyper combination. And 
it made it better at the end of those four sets. But not completely, in my opinion. But I, I began to realize, Rob, when I do four sets of a, let's say, a quad exercise, I don't care what it is, you're going, I'm changing the pattern. Even if I didn't run, even if I just went into the glued ham, you're still screwing things up by doing four exercises in a row. I'm like, so four sets in a row, I'm like, of the same exercise. I'm like, how can I change this? So what I did was I began to experiment. I only did one set of the squats. And then I went to the glued ham and I did those in the reverse hyper. And then I ran him and guess what we found? No undulations. So when I say the patterning, so I'm telling you four sets of an exercise is not great for athletes. It's Was that just for your the, the kind of training age of your son, or do you think that translates yeah. up the chain well, as well? When I got back into the gym with COVID, I brought it over the next six weeks, I brought in 50 of my athletes and we started and, and I didn't do any RPR to fix these patterns because RPR often does that. So I dropped RPR. The guy that helped bring it to this country, right? I stopped doing it for 12 weeks to see if I was correct. Yes, and the same thing happened. Rob was, I would do four sets of an exercise and boom, I would have these athletes run and I saw the undulation and I videoed it. And then in the next workout, we do the same workout. Instead of doing four sets of the safety bar back squat and like some hurdle hops, we would, we would go through and we would do the glute ham and the reverse hyper and a few other things. And then I would watch them run and they didn't undulate. So it was across the board. So I'm not saying four sets is bad for bodybuilding because you know, you have to do that to get a metabolic response to, to help with hypertrophy. Is it bad for powerlifting? No, because you need to actually work on that motor pattern, right? So you want to do 10 sets of the back squat. You want to do 10 sets, but I'm telling you, when you do 10 sets as an athlete, it's going to screw up the pattern. You know, and I've had coaches hit me up. Hey, I've never seen this before. I'm like, well, uh, like, have you ever videoed running before you do a lift and then after you do a lift? Because I didn't – I never saw it before until I actually did that. You know what I'm saying? So, like, you have to actually video and watch stuff. And, and yes, uh, Dr. Michael Yeses has said this for years. Chris Corfus does it all the time, a very good friend, co-author of mine, obviously. And, and it's like I finally caught it. So we have switched it out. And that quad dominant pattern, Rob, because I, I'm in the hockey world – my 50 athletes now that I'm coaching are all hockey players. They tend to be quad dominant right away. You know what I mean? When they come in. And, and so, Rob, uh, here's a little secret. I'm going to release it on this, this, uh, this podcast. So people are like, well, quad dominant. How do you know if they're quad dominant? Well, through RPR, I know. But here's what I caught years ago. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm going to go pen. Those, those Kessler force plates that I had were three-dimensional software and, and three-dimensional. So hands on the hips, eyes closed when I tested people. Certain athletes jumped really far forward instead of up and down. And they were told to jump up and down. Well, those happened to be my quad dominant athletes. And you saw the forces. So instead of the forces going up, they went forward. And that's where their center of mass went. So it's like, hmm, why is that? It's because they were quad dominant. They're quad dominant jumpers. 
So then I began to realize, well, how do I figure that out without a force plate? Well, Rob, if you just put all your athletes on a line, hands on hips, eyes closed, guess what? Have them do three jumps. The people who go the farther, the farther, the forward, the farthest are your quad dominant people. So here's what happened, Rob. Those athletes, and I checked this, would do the squat and then they'd run for me and one set caused them to undulate. And then it was fixed by the glute ham and the reverse hyper and the, the posterior chain exercises later. So I'm like, I don't even want that to happen, that first set. So those athletes that jumped the farthest, the fo forward the farthest, that were quad dominant, I actually started them on the glute ham. So they did four sets of rolling through the whole cycle, starting at the glute ham. And then I never saw the undulation. Okay. You see what I mean? See so, so when you walk into my gym now, and, and there's a video of this, uh, a YouTube video, explain all this. People, you have, I have six, eight exercises of my most important performance stuff. And the athlete starts from top, they'll go down, and they'll do that four times all eight exercises. And I put in stuff for rest and, you know, rehab, whatever I want. And then the, the second block in my gym that they'll do is the whatever's left for that day, right? But that main performance block is the key for getting things done. And instead of doing four sets, and again, Rob, 20 years of training, and I finally just figured this out. So I'm a little slow, but I'll get there, right? I'll get there. That performance method is superior. You coaches, you don't have to change your program. You just got to pair things together, do one set, and then go back to the top and do another set and do three to four sets along those guidelines. It will be a better natural pattern that develops or, or a less invasive pattern so that you don't affect this person's movement patterns. So it's just – and then I have some things to put with that. Um, when I get triphasic two released, I will, uh, I'll share that too. You'll be my first podcast. I'll make that. But you see, does that make sense, Rob? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, it made sense in the video when I watched it today. Yeah. And I want people just to experiment with it. Now, look, if you can find a better way, I, I want to know, right? I'm, I share stuff. So people email me and say, Hey Cal, I found this. I'm like, that's great. Perfect. You know what I mean? So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I've watched it happen. I'm, I'm in 16 weeks now. And honestly, my, my, actually my kids feel like they, they like it better. I, they don't know why they like it better. And I actually throw some stuff in between there that's a little bit more athletic, but they do like it better. When's triphasic two? I, I got the, I got the rough draft in my inbox and we got some things to finish up. I, you know what? It's changed so much because I, I like this performance patterning cycling is going in there. And then I have a method that, that helps transfer. So, so Rob, uh, like the glute ham, I knew in a quad dominant athlete, it would take in reverse hyper. I too, like those exercises, but it, it would take six to eight weeks to get somebody to transfer into a better spot from being a quad dominant athlete using those exercises. Six to eight weeks in my gym. And I came up with some transfer methods that, that are complex, I should say that can switch that in one to two weeks and that'll be released in triphasing two. Okay. Yeah. But it goes along. With, yeah. But it goes along Rob with the performance patterning stuff. Cause it fits right in. Um, I, actually I'll share it with you offline. If you just promise to keep, keep it. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. For sure. But, um, 
One thing I want to chat to you about as well is the training the foot and ankle, and you've you've spoken about it a little bit, and this is this is coming up more and more on the on the podcast. It's uh, it was brought up by JB Marin, it was brought up by Lauren Landau, it was brought up by Lee Taft. So there's more and more people openly talking about training the foot and ankle. I'd like to get your opinion on this assessing whether there's a need or is there always a need um, and how you'd program it, what exercise look like and um, yeah, just get your opinion. Well, um, the biggest thing I've seen in, in, in prehab is, you know, like rehabilitation, physical therapists have, have done this for years, but in my opinion, they don't, don't apply enough stress. So years ago, I, you know, if like, the uh, spring ankle model that we use or uh, the spring ankle exercises and then the ankle rocker that um, I mean, we didn't invent that. Chris Corfus has brought it to my attention, but, but when we go down and let's say a hip flexion exercise or a squat or even a step up, we force that knee as far forward as we can while we're keeping the arch supported. And really for, for majority of this is, is that arch remains a loaded spring and it doesn't collapse because the second it collapse, guess what? Well, every every arch that collapses when when somebody squats and they they go valgus, the glute meets weak, right? So I have a little. It'll be tough to explain, but to people, but one of our RPR resets is an arch reset, and that arch is like the middle part of the top of the calf. You rub the the crap out of it right around to the inside, about two inches right on the inside of your calf. So it's just on the inside of your calf, up high by the knee. You you find the most tender spot. And I will test somebody that um, with a muscle test on the, the glute meat, and guess what? It's weak. I hit that archery spot, that arch spot that I just spoke about, and it instantly turns them on. Why? Because if the arch collapses, those muscles shut down for whatever reason. Not sure why. Every time. Now, what also is the problem, Rob, is I was at a, a USA hockey camp, and I had six girls came to me with groins, and we had 100 athletes there. And what happened was every one of them had a bad arch that had groin problems. Now, you think about it. If that groin collapses, the tension from the, the groin all the way down to the arch, the muscle tension and the integrity of, of all the fascia is stretched. So when, when that day hit that archery set themselves, they got off the ice. They, I followed up with every one of them. They were like, coach, my groin problem went away. Why? Because the lack of stability. Now you can check the abductor magnus, right? Um, the abductor magnus, you're going, if you check that thing, muscle test it, it's going to struggle if your arch isn't working correctly. So the big thing is, is the function of the foot. And, and those five spring ankle exercises, you can probably just Google those and find them. Or you can link them. I can send you a link. Yeah, um, no. There's are five positions that you're in, and they're not too far. And it's really a deep heel position and a high heel position, okay? And you are getting stressed in those at the highest level. Actually, it's in my uh, – in this manual that we created it has a lot to do with the foot and there's even a test in there there's like a, a, a modified um what is the name of that test i call it my own test i guess but it's the uh it's the, 
one of the bones. What's this? The one of the bone markings in there? I believe it's a navicular arch. It'd be the yeah, the navicular uh, arch test. I, I modified it a little bit and put it a little bit more strained. But but Rob, the things I've seen is is when your feet are bad, the hip locks down, right? And, and it's just crazy how every step that we take on this planet starts with your foot right and yet we haven't trained it and, and i know people are starting to train it but i'm just going to tell you most people don't apply enough stress because i'm telling you i've had kids with whether the feet are flat or not have walked in here terrible feet we start stressing those things right away and you are shocked how fast they adapt and it's like why are they weak why are the feet weak i think the shoes that we wear the world that we live in we can some i'm gonna be honest with you you know um have you, have, have you found certain sports require it more than others? Again, depending on footwear, depending yeah. on the game demands, depending on the how they train. Yeah. Um, I, the, the original reason I wanted to train the foot was so I could make it really strong so I could do more plyometrics. Because, I, I mean, I love plyometrics. And, but there's a, a, there's a limit. And I found that the limit would be shin splints or if you're getting something like that. But if the foot's strong enough, then you can handle more loads, right? Uh, sports, I mean, track athletes, you know, especially the jumpers have it, right? But but my sport's really bad, Rob, because they're in a boot the whole year. And when they come out, so I actually, so Rob, here's the deal. If, if your foot's not stable, Guess what coaches from the NFL found when they did these spring ankle exercises? They called me and said, Cal, my linemen are playing lower. Well, think about that. If you can't stabilize your foot when you're trying to block somebody, your hip will raise because it's a bad, you're, you're in a bad position, Rob. My coaches, when I started doing that, mentioned that the athletes, look, what am I doing in the weight room? Am I squatting differently? Because they look like they're skating lower. Well, if you're skating and you can't find stability in your foot, your ass instantly comes up when you when you move now. So when you change directions, you will not change directions in a deep position if you don't have a strong foot and it's stable in the look at some of those cuts that uh, the American football running backs like Barry Sanders or Walter Payton. Rob, their knee is 12 inches in front of their big toe while they're making the cut. And people talk about Walter Payton. There was this hill in Chicago that he would run. And literally other co-athletes went there and said, I, I actually can't even run this. Well, they couldn't run it because when they ran, their ankle couldn't get in a good spot. So they would sh their, their legs and, and feet would throw them straight up. So they would try to run straight up the hill where, where he could hold that angle and get his foot in that position, right? So it's crazy the lack of attention that's had. And, and Chris has spoken about it for years, you know what I mean? Um, a lot of people, I mean, we sold many, many of those spring ankle manuals. I'll send you a copy. I, I need to get Chris on. I need to get Chris on. Yeah. It's just so many recommendations. Yeah, and I've read some of his stuff, so yeah. Yeah, he's uh, – um, it was funny how we met. Uh, he called me. He was hosting a clinic, uh, basically an RPR clinic, and I called him and was like, hey, Chris, uh, you know, I'm going to come to that clinic. Can you save me a spot? I'm not sure I can go. He's like, yeah, who's what's your name? And I was like, oh, it's Cal Dietz. He's like – just Caldeets to try and face it, Caldeets. <laughs> we get it off from there, right? And Chris, I mean, he's the like, he's the uh, like, he's he's a great friend and a coach, and, and he he thinks like me, and and he he, he I 
I'll call him like, am I crazy? He's like, yeah, you're back. You, you know, you, you, you're back crap crazy, I should say. But like, but, but we, we understand, we think along the guidelines because again, what works, he tests everything. He has 1080s in his house, you know, so he measures kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, you know, I buy him on, with somebody else's money, he buys them with his own money. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's great. Um, I, I would, uh, anybody was looking at his work and again, he fixes a lot of people instantly when they go there, you know what I mean? In regards to running and stuff. So, and uh, he, he trained, he, his one business is a slow guy speed school. So, right. Yeah. Like, he tries to take slow people, make them fast, which that's most coaches should actually be interested in right? <laughs> to say the least. But yeah. So look, the foot, if it's functioning, athletes can change directions. I can't like people think tight hips. Well, you actually may have tight hips because your brain's going. I have a problem in the foot and I can't stabilize. I have to lock the hips down. So, so this hip problem or hip tightness can stem from the foot. Now, I got I got flat feet. That's okay as long as your feet are strong. You know. And the other thing is, you'll notice. Look. My athletes with the biggest glutes, guess what they all had? Super strong feet. Your foot, the Babinski reflex, when you're born, when you're a baby and they, they scratch the bottom of your foot to make sure, it is tied to that glute. If that if that big toe is working and is super strong, like it is monstrous. That glute will fire every time. I, I talk about a number of things, especially getting the right glute pattern to start firing. Look. Rob, again, one thing people's tested, I'll test the glute strength. I have people do all these activation exercises. Guess what happens? The glutes get weaker, right? I, I don't know people that, why they haven't tested this. Well, what's going on? People are like, why did it get weaker? Because you have the wrong glute pattern. Your QL or hamstring, or, so you're doing these exercises and guess what you're doing? You're ingraining the wrong pattern. Because not one time have I ever had somebody came in with a weak glute, do all these glute activation exercises that people recommend, and it gets better. Now, here's how it gets better. It's this simple. Rob, when you do those exercises, you squeeze your big toe into the ground, and they actually turn the glute on. And then when you do the muscle test, if you squeeze your big toe and then we, we test the strength of the glute, guess what? It gets really strong. So... In my gym for years, even before I understood RPR, I always knew that we had to squeeze the big toe into the ground because that's actually how you're supposed to walk when we do plyometrics or hip extension exercises. So you're doing a squat, you need to squeeze your big toe into the ground on the way up to activate the glutes correctly. And then guess what that does? Turns the core on correctly. Rob, that's one thing I've checked, right? I think people have to realize, like, all this core bracing and everything that, that people have recommended over the years, every test I've ever ran, it makes my athletes worse. And I just started 20 years ago when those all the books came out, right, Rob? Mel Siff was kind of on a bandwagon because I liked Mel Siff back then. I would have my athletes run a 20-yard dash, bracing their core. What happened? They'd lose three tenths in a 20. <laughs> no, that is – I would be like, if that happened over summer, I'd think you have cancer and I'd take you to the hospital, right? Brace your core and do a vertical jump. Vertical jump goes down, right? Bench press, I checked probably 100 athletes, roughly. I'd have them squeeze their glutes and bench, and I'd have them brace their core and bench. Guess where the bar moved faster? 
100% of the time is when they squeeze their glutes, guess what? The bar moves faster, right? It's just a bad pattern. The hot, whether you play on hollowing, it to me, there's, and you can do muscle testing if you want. Squeeze the glutes, muscle test somebody. Squeeze the core, however you want to do it, guess what happens? They get weaker every time. Balance, force place balance testing. Balance is all over the place. So, and people have to understand, if the hips are firing correctly, what sets right on top of the hips? The core. If your core isn't working correctly, it's most likely because of the hips underneath them. And my version of the core is really the spinal erector, the spinal erectors, okay? Rob, the, the, the sequence of survival is protect the brain and your eyes, the eyes are part of the brain, and then the next thing is the spine, right? So I'm gonna go on a quick rant. How does a how does a bridge in the weight room, in the weight room, train the core the way your core needs to work in sports? So I have an athlete flying down the ice at 18 meters per second, 16, 18. He's holding a stick, shuffling each leg. The core has to stabilize split second decisions. A puck's coming across the ice. He's tracking it with his eyes. His eyes because of the position of the eyes, changes the function of the core. The way he holds a stick, whether your hands are pronated or supinated, changes the position of the core, changes the tension of the core. The defenseman nicks the puck, and then a split second, he's able to reach out and catch it. So everything that transpired there in that core, you're telling me happens in a bridge in the weight room? <laughs> And if you look at my goat drill, I talk about this. The very foot strike, the way you foot, your foot hits the ground affects the core. And when I say core, I'm talking about your spinal erectors because that's really what the core is. That's the survival mechanism. And then the eye position, the hand position, your head position affects all that through there. How does a static plank in a weight room simulate the core, right? If your core is weak, I get it. You need to, to do that. But folks, I have always believed running, sprinting is the best core exercise I've ever seen. Because, well, look at the, look at, there was a study done on uh, runners with no arms. And they undulated all over the place. You could see their belly button, right? Because they didn't have any arms to counterbalance the running. Well, the same thing will happen with your athletes. You'll see, if you watch their midsections and their belly buttons, they would undulate if their core is not working correctly. Okay, just because you may do a core test on somebody and you think that that core test is actually sports when it's when it's not, you know what I mean? Everybody thinks their core is weak, right? I, I had one, one, one athlete come from a PT, broke their foot. PT said, oh, yeah, your core is weak. This is a female athlete. Rob, she produced 700 newtons in core flexion on my tests. The average male does 450, right? So I talked this PT down a path. I'm like, well, how would you test them? Oh, I didn't test them. I just kind of know. I'm like, oh, you know, the core is weak, right? She's stronger than half my men's team. She's 182 pounds, lean, muscular, female. And yet every PT will say, oh, her core's weak, right? It's just mine. They don't, they, and Rob, they've never measured it. They've never measured it. Rob, and, and I could put her on the table, put her in a sit-up position, and she can hold me off the ground. Again, I'm just north of 250, right? So she can, she can do that as a female, literally hold me off the ground. I'm trying to, I hold, I'm pushing on her legs and chest to try to break her and she can hold me. 
how does she have a weak core? And there's there's obviously many parts to the core, but that's just the frustrating thing that nobody really checks stuff. They just mindlessly say stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm gonna do a little roundup. Okay. That's all right. Yeah. I think we're we're, get, we're coming to the, we're coming to the end of the the, the slot that I was um, that I promised you I would I would be I would allocate. So. If anyone wants to, I mean, you fired me a few links, which I'll which I'll also link to in the show notes as well, on the, the YouTube page and, the, and all that kind of stuff. But where is the best place for people to go? It's probably multiple places now. Yeah. For, for people to uh, learn more about what we've spoken about, what we've spoken about, what's coming down the track, what other things you got going on. Yeah, um, probably my best my best uh, place would be XL Athletes, my uh, main site, right? The XL Athlete, the extra large athlete. Um, I'm on uh, Instagram, I believe. I don't really do a lot with that. I mean, I got some people that do the post. Uh, um, and then really email, if you want to get a hold of me through email, it's caldietz at gmail. So C-A-L-D-I-E-T-Z at gmail. Um, if I don't get to you, just keep sending it back. I get a lot of emails. Um, uh, during the course of a, uh, a day. And if nothing else works, I usually put free whiskey or beer at the top and then I get right to it. <laughs> um, I got like six of those in my email right now. <laughs> I usually get to those, um, which means that at least somebody's not out of the blue and they've heard this podcast. So they're somewhat educated on my stuff. You know what I mean? So yeah. Legend, yeah. yeah. Right. Filter. Great filter. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Great filter. And, it, and really there's just the, the, the savage in me goes right to that email. <laughs> You're like, oh, free beer. Woo. Yeah, great. <laughs> I'm there. So um, it gets me every time. So, but yeah, so that's where people get a hold of me. Um, and hopefully I have triphasing two out by uh, the spring. And uh, I got, and the reason it just gets pushed off because I got new ideas that, that we're moving ahead with and pushing. So, um, I, I get excited about. It. I'll get you a free copy there, my friend. So. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Appreciate that. Thank you. You mentioned the website as well halfway through the, the episode. Um, performance. Oh, the one is linked to uh, performance made simple. It's really a bunch of formulas that we have. Performance okay. made simple or coaching made simple. Um, if you're on XO Athlete, I think I link a lot of the how-to videos to that, so you'll you'll eventually get to it. Um, yeah, and you know, ultimately the. Uh, and the, the 1020 tool for the periodization model is, uh, I think there's a few game changers in there. And I released that a while back, maybe a year or so, and, and coaches have emailed me a lot about it. So um, they're getting some really good success with it. Yeah, I think people will be interested in a lot of that stuff. Cool. Well, I'll make sure I'll link to that as well so people can people can jump over there, have a little play, and uh, hopefully come back with you come back to you with some great feedback yeah that would be great and uh, i appreciate you having me on and it pleasure was, it was awesome i love talking shop i i I'd probably take over the conversation a little bit yeah, no, no, it's great it's great don't worry <laughs> don't worry mate we'll have a little chat we'll have a little chat off air but so stick around but i'll uh i'll officially let you go so thank you very much cal really appreciate your time have a good day brother cheers mate Thanks for tuning in to episode 325 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Cal. Cal is an absolute legend. The chat we had before we hit record and the chat we had after we hit record just definitely reiterates, reiterates my feelings that he's an absolute legend. So thank you to Cal for coming on and sharing his knowledge and wisdom. Also, big thanks to 
Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs and Perch for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really appreciate their support. If you're listening to this on the day it goes live, it's New Year's Eve, so Happy New Year. Um, thank you for your support over 2020. It's certainly been a, a strange year, but I really do appreciate people keeping turning up on a Thursday morning and uh, and listening to the Pacey Performance Podcast, and also those that dive into the archives as well. There's plenty out there. So thank you for tuning into this episode. Happy New Year, and I'll speak to you next week.